Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I am Laura Carfang, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. It's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your content. And please be sure to follow us on social media at Breast Cancer Conversations. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you, our listeners and audience, is the fun part. But there is a lot of sweat and joy that come from the relentless hours of post-production and editing that we do each week to bring our podcast to life. My heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've decided to make the decision to partner with Podigy to help with the back end of editing. If you have a podcast or are thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with, they provide great advice and customer support, and they offer our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention our podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Podigy part of our support team. To all of our listeners, if you haven't checked out survivingbreastcancer.org's website yet, I would encourage you to do so. We've developed our virtual patient care platform where you can find our weekly virtual support groups and our online members area, plus so much more. Today, I'm honored to connect with the Nagurney Cancer Institute, an accomplished cancer research and testing facility with fully accredited federal and state licensed laboratories. For over 20 years, they've offered personalized cancer testing that helps select the most effective and least toxic drug regimen for your cancer. Dr. Robert Nagurney joins us today on the podcast. He has been internationally recognized as a pioneer in cancer research. With more than 20 years experience in human tumor primary culture analysis, Dr. Nagurney has authored more than 100 manuscripts, book chapters, and abstracts, including publications in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Gynecologic Oncology, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, and British Journal of Cancer. Welcome to the conversation. My name is uh, Robert Nagurney. I'm a uh, board-certified medical oncologist, hematologist, and internist. I conducted my medical studies and graduated from McGill University in Montreal. I then traveled to California, did a residency in internal medicine. I then went back to the East Coast and did a fellowship in medical oncology at Georgetown University, and then finally returned to California to the Scripps Institute and did a second fellowship in hematology. I was then recruited to the University of California, Irvine, where I joined the faculty, clinical faculty, and uh, became very interested in continuing work I had started in my residency. And uh, that was the study of human tumor biology in the laboratory, studying how cancers behave and particularly how they respond to injury. What do cancer cells do when you beat them up? And so we were looking for ways to better understand how, uh, how cancer responded to chemotherapy in particular. And uh, that really launched my area of work, which is the study of human tumor tissue in a platform that can predict response to therapy before you have to receive it. So it's a kind of a, a better way to use drugs and combinations to get the best outcomes. Wonderful. I love that analogy of like kind of beating up the cancer cells. Mm, mm. <laughs> the only good cancer cell is a dead cancer cell. Yes, exactly. And what attracted you to this biology around um, cancer? Have you always wanted to go in into this field? Actually, uh, to be quite honest, no, I wasn't expecting it. I have a son in medical school and another one I wants to go to medical school. And the one son tells me he's going to be an orthopedic surgeon, but I was having a conversation last night and I was explaining that very often you have no idea what you're going to go into until you kind of get through medical school and start doing it. So we'll see. We'll see. In any case, I, I was not sure what I wanted to do, but I was pretty sure I didn't want to do cancer research. I think partly because it seemed, it seemed like cancer research had become the, the age-old my son's a brain surgeon. Now it was my son's a cancer researcher. So it seemed like maybe I needed to do something else. But I, I was looking for something to do in my first year of medical school. And um, I ambled into the laboratory of a guy doing basic research in cancer pharmacology. And we hit it off quite, quite immediately. And uh, I got a position in the lab as a first-year student. 
Within a couple of years, we'd published some papers in a prominent journal, Cancer Research. And at that point, my career in cancer research was largely launched. You sort of find yourself in it and doing it. So it was almost by accident, but I'm really glad I did it. Cancer medicine is a window on human biology. It tells us where we go wrong in the course of our lives that lead to a disease state. And interestingly, cancer gives us insights into all diseases because as cells break down and suffer injury, they might go down the pathway of cardiovascular disease. Many of the pathways that are, are uh, evident in cancer are shared by the uh, endothelial cells of blood vessels, so cardiac disease and cancer-related. And diabetes, the, the ultimate metabolic disorder, is in and of itself also many of the signals and pathways of cancer are shared by diabetes. So you begin to realize that cancer as a discipline uh, is a window on all disease. And, and that's, that's kind of been my approach. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So as a point of clarification for my own understanding, if I'm thinking about this as cardiovascular or like diabetes, is it safe to assume that when you're talking about these pathways, if you have one of these diseases, it is potentially a risk factor in developing cancer later on? Interesting question. The, the way that we view risk factors, we've come to coin the term stressor. And what we mean by that isn't that you're uptight or that you're emotionally challenged, all part of it. But what we really mean by that is that you're putting an undue pressure on what is otherwise a really beautiful machine. The human body is this excellent machine, and it has all these great moving parts. And the trouble is we don't change the oil, or we, we don't use good gas, or we don't check the air filter, or we don't keep the right air pressure in the tires. And over time, we're stressing, we're, we're, we're putting the system at risk. And then it begins to break down. So it might break down in a way that leads to cardiovascular disease. It might break down in a way that leads to metabolic disorders or autoimmune disorders or cancer. But they are in many ways connected. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's interesting that you bring up the two examples of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. A lot of our listeners know that I've been going through this in terms of my own personal breast cancer journey this like life after breast cancer, right? So you get diagnosed, you go through what's considered traditional treatment, whether it's chemotherapy, surgery, radiation. And then in my particular case, I'm on aromatase inhibitors probably for like the next 10 years. And now that I'm a couple of years out from my initial diagnosis, I am trying to be incredibly proactive with my primary care team to say, you know, I with radiation on my left side, like I am concerned about heart disease, or now that I'm on some of these other medicines to keep the cancer at bay, do I have to be worried about diabetes? Or do I have to be worried about like a higher cholesterol or blood pressure, et cetera, and starting to really navigate the longer term side effects of a cancer treatment? So kind of seeing this interwoven interconnectivity of just one's health is, you know, I'm always learning something every day about it. And the stressors in and of itself of going through such harsh treatment you know, can also lead to some of these other longer term side effects that we're navigating. So I appreciate that you bring up these two little things that have been definitely on my mind these last couple of weeks talking about diabetes and cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. So just wanted to share that. Yeah, no, I mean, these are fundamental connections. And um, as one of my colleagues, Mark Mayad, has said, heart health is cancer health and vice versa. So these, these are, and, and where we'll be going in the future we'll probably make those connections stronger. Absolutely. I was down at the um, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium this past December, and there was a lot of wonderful researchers presenting data and findings and asking those pointed questions of understanding pathways, especially as it relates to the various stages of breast cancer. And if we can break down these pathways from early stage breast cancer and know where they travel to and how they travel before they get to stage four or other distant um, locations in the body, you know, we can put up that roadblock to actually prevent it from metastasizing. And that was my first exposure really talking about and understanding what these pathways mean and and how confusing and complex it can be, right? Where in my personal experience, I was thinking, oh, okay, so if cancer ends up in my lymph nodes, that's one mechanism for it to travel. I was talking to another survivor where it actually went through her bloodstream and ended up traveling through that mechanism. So it's very interesting as we're thinking about pathways and how, how cancer can be very sneaky and complex. Well, the interesting thing about cancer is that it didn't invent the pathways. See, what these pathways are are pre-existing roadways for your body to travel. Cancer hijacks them. Oh. 
So you see, we've come at cancer in our research in a way that almost would make you think that we invented all this stuff. And, and, and so we call them oncogenes, right? You've probably heard of oncogenes. Yeah, can you define oncogenes. that again? What, what well, are the oncogenes? An oncogene, oncogene is, a, is a cancer-related gene generally driving a pathway. So uh, HER2, which is the breast cancer, human epidermal growth factor receptor number two, or ERB as it's known, is sort of a pathway. And, and epidermal growth factor number one, another pathway, and VEGF, and these are all sort of pathways, right? But cancer didn't invent them. Cancer didn't come up with them. Cancer uses them. One of the things we have to realize is that not every pathway is broken or mutated or duplicated. So, for example, if you use, you live in Boston, do I understand? I do, yes. Okay, okay. So if you want to uh, go to New York, you can take many different pathways. You can, I mean, you can take a lot of different roads, right? Yes. Um, uh, the 95, I guess there are a bunch of them. Anyway, so we've, I think, maybe oversimplified some of this because if you, if you think about the way we're viewing this, we say, well, if we block the 95, there'll never be another cancer. No. The cancer cell goes across the state of Massachusetts and goes down the whatever. I can't remember what the highways are, but 91 or sure. something. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So... We, we've tended to be reductionist in our thinking, maybe a little too simplistic. And I understand for you, it's all very confusing. But for me, it's, it's a language that I've learned. And so I look at cancer through all those pathways. What we're looking for are unifying principles. And so I don't want to be too complicated here, but just, just to imagine for a moment, most of the oncogene and most of the pathways that we speak of, when you drill down onto what they do, many of them are actually nutrient pathways. They have to do with how cells stay alive. So the fundamental problem of cancer is a cell that stays alive that your body would rather doesn't. So for example, somewhere in the course of your young life, a cell in your breast that was supposed to grow up, do its job and die, decided to stay alive. And when it stayed alive, it used some pathway, some trick, some nutrient pathway, some growth factor. And that pathway enabled this one little cell in your breast to stay alive, even though the whole rest of the body, all three trillion more or less cells of you, said, no thanks, we don't want you. And when that cell outlived everybody else, it passed that secret down to its offspring, down to its children, and the children's children, and all the way through. And over a period of years, those pathways became very deleterious to your well-being. Those cells stayed alive, even though you didn't want them to. And they become a tumor and a mammographic finding and a surgery and all that stuff. But the fundamental problem with the cancer is that it wants to stay alive. It'll use any pathway it can. And many of those pathways are not mutated. They're just normal pathways being used by uh, bad cells for bad purposes. And many cancer patients have no measurable mutations. Many cancer patients, uh, you can't find an abnormality. And it's not that they don't have cancer. It's that their cancer is very devious and is using normal pathways abnormally. Interesting. Wow, that's a really fundamental point. I appreciate like you just clarifying that. That's kind of shocking and scary at the same time. Maybe, but also exciting. Because you see, if you drill down to the next level of complexity in cancer, you get down to what is the fundamental pathway. And that may well be bioenergetics and cellular energy. No cell can stay alive without energy. So when we ultimately, ultimately figure all this stuff out, We'll come up with ways, maybe even dietary and lifestyle changes, that will influence the the basic energy of cancer cells. That's what we really think is going to be the future. That's great. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, Is that part of the research that you're currently doing? Or is this like research that's currently being developed in terms of like lifestyle and nutrition? Well, it starts with the very beginning of my career. When I first got interested in how I was going to select treatments for patients, there was a collection of research going on where they were studying cancer, just like I do. They were studying cancer cells in the test tube. I mean, it's very appealing. Like, like if when you were diagnosed, if, if a doctor said to you, well, I'll take a small portion of your cancer out of your body and I'll put it into a test tube and I'll tell you exactly what drugs to take. Mm-hmm. You would have said, where do I sign up? Right. Okay. So everybody wanted to do this, right? I mean, we've been using chemotherapy for multiple decades and we're not terribly good at it. So everybody wants to do this, right? And the trouble is that when the doctors who were working in this field, and very you know, hardworking guys, 
they came to the approach for cancer measurements that had to do with cancers growing. I mean, after all, if I said to you, what is your cancer doing wrong? Most people say, well, they divide rapidly. It's uncontrolled cell growth. It's DNA synthesis. It's mitosis. It's all this stuff, right? So that's the, the lore surrounding cancer. So it turns out that probably that wasn't as true as we thought. Cancer cells don't really grow so much as they just don't want to die. They just like to stay alive. And if they stay alive long enough, they have an extra couple of kids, and their kids have an extra couple of kids, and that's kind of the dynamic. So it is a geometric progression, but it isn't driven by rapid growth. It's driven by a lack of cell death, a lack of elimination, a negative negative. So when I got interested in all that, I realized that the reason all these test tube models didn't work was because cancer patients were being tested for drugs that stopped cells from growing. That was the test tube, right? You stop them from growing, and then you give the drug, and it didn't work. And repeatedly, it didn't. And I became interested in why didn't it work? And I started working with a colleague from the National Cancer Institute. And we all said, well, what if you just killed the cell outright? Skip the growth, skip the nutrients, skip the propagation, skip all the DNA synthesis. Just go in there and kill the cell. And we said, well, let's try it. So we started with leukemia and we started adding drugs that kill leukemia into the test tube. And lo and behold, we, we picked all the winners. In fact, we had a, a nearly perfect model for childhood leukemia. So then we said, well, could you do that in adult leukemia? Yes. Could you do that in solid tumors with a little work? Yes. And we began to realize that cancer cells needed to be killed to predict their outcome. It's not a perfect test, but it's all about double responses. So then I got interested in, well, well, what is it that keeps the cell alive? And I began to move away from what is the DNA and the information of the cell. And I got interested in the energy of the cell. And the cell's energy is produced in an organelle called the mitochondrion. And the mitochondrion is a, um, it's like a little battery. And every cell has many, many, many batteries. And it's the mitochondrion of the cell that keeps all the energy going. So once you realize that you have to stop cells from growing, if that may not be right, maybe you have to kill them. And then once you get pretty good at killing them, you say, well, well how do they die? And you realize that they die because they run out of energy. So at that point... I said, well, wouldn't it be appealing to go after cell energy? And the trouble is we haven't spent much time doing this. So we have almost no drugs that stop cell energy. We have lots of drugs that damage DNA. We have radiation that damages DNA. We have cells that stop cells from undergoing mitosis, Taxol and, and venorolabine and Taxotere and Abraxane and all these drugs. And we have all these sorts of things that stop cells from growing. But we have very, very few things that stop cells from living, and in particular, at the level of energy. So that's where I think it'd be really exciting. And that today is a reflection of our work, because what we measure in the test tube is the death of cells. That's what I do. If anyone asks me what I do well, I say my one job is killing cancer. I'm a cancer killer. Yes. And I realize more and more that the cancers die because they lose energy. So that is what led us into this focus on, on bioenergetics and metabolism. And that's that's kind of where we're moving. Wow, this is this is the first time that I'm hearing about this. And I love the idea. So thank you for, first of all, being able to share the, the phenomenal work that you are diving into. And because this is the first time that I'm hearing and learning about this, so please forgive me and bear with me as we go through these, this conversation. So if we can kill and pretty much like deplete these cells from energy, I mean, just I'm thinking of myself, right? Like when I'm really tired, I have no energy, like I go to sleep, right? So if we can take out all of the energy from these cancerous cells, in theory, then they die because there's no more energy for them to thrive. Am I saying that right. correctly? Yeah, sure, sure. So how do you get to that? Like how, because everything I've talked to or people I've talked to before, it's such a focus on DNA and even going beyond the DNA and trying to figure out if there's RNA mutations and everything at that level. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this energy and cellular level? Oh, absolutely. The way that we got there was that the very, very first test that we ever ran in this field was to measure whether the cell would lose the function of its membrane. If, if you think of a cell, a cell is like a balloon. And on the inside of the balloon, it's all the machinery of the cell. And on the outside of this balloon is the rest of the world. Now, in a multicellular organism, the rest of the world is the bloodstream. But in a unicellular organism, the rest of the world is the world. That's a bacteria. They live you know, on the street or on a piece of bread. Or I mean, they, their whole world is their cell, right? Is them. A body, a human body, 
is a collection of cells. So there's a kind of contract. You do your job. I do my job. I'll give you some food. You give me some protection. I want you to walk around. So a muscle cell and your tooth cell choose your food. It's all this stuff working together, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still a cell interacting with the outside world. So the fundamental basis of biology is identity, that is me versus you, and communication, me talking to you. That's biology. So what we realized early was that no cell could live if it lost the barrier between the outside world and the inside world. So we began to measure when do cells lose their membranes? When do cells burst? And if a drug damages a cell, the cell will lose its membrane integrity. So what we became interested in is, can we show that these cells become permeable and can be stained and can be distinguished from a living happy cell by virtue of what that membrane is doing, what that barrier is doing, what that wall of great wall of China protecting you from the inside and outside. And that membrane integrity, that ultimate ability to, to preserve is maintained by energy. The cellular ATP enzymes keeping the wall intact. So we began to say, well, drugs that work for people cause the membranes to fall apart. And for many years, I didn't really drill down onto what we were doing. I just said it works. So I said, okay, if I add this drug in, then this patient gets better, then I've got the right drug. But sometime in the 90s and into the last uh, decades, I began to wonder, well, well, why? Why does the ability to preserve the self, non-self, why does that identity of your cell versus the rest of the world, why does that break down? And that's what led me to the idea that energy drove that, that, that the cell was keeping itself protected by generating energy, energy from glucose and amino acids and lipids. And that, and that kind of was the pathway that made me say, okay, well, if I can treat patients better, if I can use this laboratory test, and I can take a patient's cancer cell, put it into the test tube, expose it to the drugs and combinations of interest, and I can pick a winner, and I can better than double the response of the patient's outcome. What did I actually do? What did I really do that chose that drug for me? And that that's what's been leading me toward this, the next level of, of, of rigor, which is kind of why do cells die and what do they do when they're injured that allows you to, to win that battle? And we think more and more that that's a battle of, of cellular energy. Awesome. That's amazing and incredibly exciting. Do you have, when you get these cells and you put them in the test tubes to like test which drugs will be most effective in terms of treatment, do you have a repertoire of drugs that you're utilizing? Or can you explain a little bit more what that like hypothesis process looks like? And are these chemotherapy drugs or are these other types of, I don't know, an alternative word, but if they're not chemotherapy, is this something else that you're utilizing? Metabolic inhibitors, growth factor inhibitors, targeted agents. Sure. sure. Got it. Okay. You know, it's not that complicated to think through the principle of what we do. The complication is in the details of what we do. So we began, as I mentioned, working on leukemia. And we said, okay, children with leukemia are exposed to a class of drugs known as the corticosteroids, dexamethasone, uh, prednisone, prednisolone. So we said, well, you would want to know if a leukemia is going to respond to this drug because every single child with leukemia gets the drug. So let's see if the kid's cells are damaged. Let's see if this widely used collection of drugs cause damage. Well, we said, well, there are other drugs like vincristin and cytosine or rabinocide and donorubsin and stuff. So we said, well, we can add all of those in too. And the more we did that, we more we began to realize that there were sort of categories of patients. There were patients who retained the ability to respond to injury, what I call sort of the mitoto- uh, you know, the sort of apoptotic machinery, as we call it. And there are people whose cells forgot how to die. They don't know how to die. Mm. So what we realized early in our first paper, this goes way back, was that there were two kinds of kids. There were kids that you could cure with almost anything. And there were kids for whom we couldn't find much. And when we followed year after year, those two groups broke out very differently. And so the question that has never been completely resolved in my own mind is, do I find the responders and separate them from the non-responders, or can I actually change the responder, uh, a non-responder to a responder? And I'm still working on that. Like, so, so I'm not sure if I'm just a really good detective or if I'm actually 
a really capable warrior. And I, and I don't know yet exactly which one I am. I think I'm pretty good at it, but I'm not quite sure which is the reason I'm succeeding. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like a combination of both, right? And to some degree, you know, I talk at least in our breast cancer community, you know, the same thing. And I'm not sure if this is where the conversation is going, but I talk with women where we could be on the same drugs. And luckily for me, knock on wood, like my cancer and tumor cells are responding very well to it. And, you know, friends of mine are not. And so we talk a lot about trying to understand why some people can be resistant to certain chemotherapy drugs. We talk a lot about the psychological side of, you know, survivor's guilt, so to speak, and why one thing is working for me and not necessarily a friend of mine. And then they can be on, you know, second, third, fourth lines of treatment, really trying to do this investigation and figuring out what works for them and how their body can respond. And it's perplexing. Well, the drugs that we use for cancer have been designed over decades and they target certain biological features of cells. So you can break drugs down into their mechanisms. What do they do when the cell is exposed? A large number of drugs beat up the DNA. So they break the very double helix structure and they create all kinds of dents and disruptions in the genes. And there are drugs with names like cyclophosphamide, cytoxin, and uh, cisplatin or carboplatin. And those drugs are similar to radiation. They beat up the DNA. There are other classes of drugs that prevent the cell from synthesizing new DNA. So they make it very difficult for the cell to do its, do its factory work. They're not being rained on by hand grenades. They're just trying to do their job making new cells and you give them phony building blocks. And those drugs are called anti-metabolites. They, they're, they're disruptors of DNA synthesis. So one collection of drugs beat up the DNA, and another one prevents you from making it at all. Okay. Another collection of drugs stop the cell if it's gotten through all the hand grenades, and if it is able to make all the DNA. Another class of drugs stop the cells from popping one cell into two. And those those break the mitotic process. And those are, those are another class of drugs, you see. So what we think, what we're, what we're coming to the conclusion is that everybody has their own frailty. Like one collection of patients have cells that can't stand getting broken DNA. They just can't handle it. So in a test tube, when I throw platinum or, or an alkylating agent like cyclophosphamide into the test tube, those cells are obliterated and they're gone. And that has to do with things like BRCA. You've probably heard of BRCA. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what that's about, you see, because BRCA is a DNA repair capability. And so if you are a BRCA person, strangely, even though you have a higher likelihood of getting cancer, you actually have a really good chance of responding because the very thing that makes the cell get cancer makes it hard for the cancer cell to repair DNA damage. So those DNA damage signals are one class of patients. Now, another class of patients may have a really revved up factory, and they're working overtime to make the new cars or the new airplanes or whatever. And you come along and block their uh, supply line, and they just fall apart. So that's 5-fluorouracil or methotrexate or gemcitabine. Or, and these are the drugs that sort of block that pathway. And then finally, you come along to the taxanes and the vinc alkaloids, and they stop the cells from popping, from pulling apart. So really, patients probably manifest different levels of, of, of sensitivity, frailties, uh, responses. And the trouble is today, which is I find incredibly disappointing, is that we don't take the time to figure out who's who. So we say, oh, well, we give Taxol and everybody gets Taxol. Well, gee, is Taxol good for me? Well, I don't know. We'll give it to you and find out. No, 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 no. I don't, that's not the way I would do this. I mean, it'd be one thing if Taxol was like penicillin. You know? So if your urinary tract infection didn't get better, you hadn't lost your hair and had lowered blood counts and have mouth sores. But when you get Taxol and it's not right for you, it's really a disaster. You know? And the same thing is true of all these drugs. So at the simplest level, we say, we don't know all of the features of DNA and genomics that distinguish one patient from the next. We really have, don't have those tools. I mean, everyone touts them and all the major institutions talk about genomics and all that stuff. But for the most part, it isn't really picking drugs very well. 
So what we say is, well, use the cell, use the individual cell or the clusters of cells, these organoids, use them as your platform, as your tool. And instead of taking a satellite photograph of the earth from 300 miles in the sky, go down onto the ground level, shake hands with the person and say, okay, are you going to respond to Taxol? Or are you going to respond to platinum? Or are you going to respond to cyclophosphamide? And if you're going to, your cells will tell us that. It's the secret handshake. I'm sensitive to cytoxin. So that's in our drug development work and in our drug testing work and in our patient selection work, it's not that hard to make these decisions if you get fresh tissue and you, and you take the patient's cells through this measurement. And, and it only takes a few days. It's about a week in, in, in duration. And it tells you if the cells are going to die. And if they die in three or four days, they're very likely to die when you get that drug. Amazing. So I have a plethora of questions, actually, that are spawning from this conversation. A couple of questions, and I'll let you then kind of take this and and run with it. So I think a lot of times we throw around different terms and just kind of hearing this conversation, it sounds like in my like layperson's mind, not having a medical background, where like on one hand, I want to say like we're targeting a cell, right? Or we're target, targeting the, the cancer. On the other hand, too, it also sounds a lot like you are talking about personalized medicine or precision medicine because you're taking something very personal to that person and trying to find the exact combination of drugs that can most effectively kill the cancer. And then my other question is, so again, just using my own personal experience, I tell people we took a very aggressive approach, right? I'm sure, and I loved my oncological team. I'm sure we got our tumor and given my age and the history and all of this stuff, he put together the chemotherapy regimen to be as aggressive as possible. And I believe it included cytoxin, um, adriamycin. It also included Taxol. So I'm one of those people who get, got the Taxol. And then also I was given rounds of um, the Herceptin and Progetta as well. And in particular, after everything, I did not have a complete response to all of this and was given an oral chemotherapy of capsidabine. So in my experience, which is like listing off all of these drugs, I'm like, wow, I probably hit a lot of these combinations that you just mentioned just to make sure that we are being aggressive and we're attacking these, these cancer cells from a variety of angles to make sure that we're having the biggest impact. But then it begs the question of, well, how do we know it's working, right? I think that's like, we walk around every day, like I'm on these AI pills right now, like how do I know it's working, right? How do we know that the cells are dying and you take this big leap of faith to, to hope? But it sounds like what you're experiencing and experimenting with in the test tubes and actually seeing the results are, you know, here's, here's the cells and you can actually give it particular combinations and watch them either stop dividing or die right then and there or, you know, except you're stopping those roadblocks, which is phenomenal. I guess my other like question, just kind of painting this picture is how could we empower or can patients be empowered to ask their oncologist to go this extra mile to say, well, you know what? I might not be a good candidate for Taxol. What tests should be done or how do I move forward to figure out what is best for me? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, no question could be more important to a cancer patient than how do I get out of this? What do I have to do to get out of this? And your doctor, and I'm not being critical, your doctor oh, no. yeah. is unable to answer that with certainty. So they turn to the literature and they say, well, we have come to conclude that cytoxin and adriamycin has a, a advantage over older regimens. So we use that. And it's a kind of, it's an average patient study because you take a group of people who are somewhat heterogeneous. And you give them cytoxin and adriamycin versus cytoxin, methotrexate, and 5-FU. I mean, these are the kinds of trials that were done in the years past. And it was concluded that cytoxin plus adriamycin kind of moved the herd a little further and faster. So that became adopted. And then someone came along and said, well, let's add taxol to that. And so then the cytoxin, adriamycin, taxol regimen became the standard. And it was a slow, incremental move forward. And, and so your doctors want to stay within the confines of all the best data analysts or so. But is it at least possible that your cancer cells were exquisitely sensitive to cytoxin, didn't really care about adriamycin, and were not very affected by taxol? It's possible, right? Is it possible that even though the prior methotrexate-based therapies didn't prove to be better in average, they might individually be perfect for you, you see? So 
these are the what's called in medical science the failure of equipoise. Equipoise is a, is a term in scientific research that means you have equal groups, equipoise. So when you test a hypothesis, you want as best you can to be sure that the two groups being tested are identical. And we don't have the ability to do that. So we randomize. You know what a randomized clinical trial is. You see, what they say is, well, there are certain things we know, like you're a woman and you have HER2 and you're ER positive or negative. So you categorize people by all that stuff. But then you come to the point where you randomize. And the reason you randomize is because there are deep, dark secrets contained within every patient that we can't figure out. We can't, I can't look at you or weigh you or run a blood test or do your DNA and know what drug is going to work better. So we say, well, we're going to accept that there are things we don't know, and we're going to randomize people so that one group gets one thing and one group gets the other. And then on average, for all the things we do know and for all the things we don't know, we're going to see some improvement. All right. One of my arguments with all this is that failure of equipoise is when there are detectable differences in the two groups that you didn't take the time to find out. And that's what we want to do. So what we want to say is before you randomize, before you go into the uh, you know, uh, uncertainties, try to get another level or two of certainty. So find out if this patient is more sensitive to taxol. Find out if they are more sensitive to cytoxin. Find out if a drug you're not considering is actually better and use that instead. And do these things before the randomization, before that uncertainty arises. I have a very uh, striking example. One of our longtime friends, a woman who's worked with us for many years, presented with breast cancer and she's young and she has two nice children and we've known them almost their whole lives. And she was being seen at a hospital in Los Angeles, and she had triple negative breast cancer. And that's a different kind of breast cancer, about 10 or 15% of patients are triple negative, depending on population. So I said, oh, you have triple negative? Yes. So I said, well, we, we don't want you to get cytoxin, adrenalizin, taxol, because there are better regimens of triple negative. And her doctor said, no, we're going to give that. We're going to give that. So I said, I, I can't countenance this. So I went and I brought her to my hospital. I broke her out of her insurance program and I paid personally to buy a biopsy, like to, to get her tissue, the breast tissue biopsied. And then I gave her my laboratory study. I, I, I just sort of provided it to her. And lo and behold, as I expected, she was more sensitive to a drug combination called carboplatin and taxotere. So Monday of this week, she got her first dose. And I'm very proud of that because I perceived that she should do something different, but I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. So I, I had to prove for my own comfort level that my hypothesis that her triple negative would do better with a platinum-based regimen was true. And when I could prove that, then I changed her care and I took over her care. I wasn't intending to do that. But it's very important that people get the right thing. It's very important. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because, and I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, we rely on the oncologists and doctors and yourself to be the specialist and to, to test and give us the best treatment possible. And a lot of times too, we're, I don't want to use the word that we're not empowered, but we don't know any better. This is the first time we're going through a breast cancer diagnosis. So if someone tells me that I'm HER2 positive, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to look at the pathology report and I'm going to move forward with whatever that's going to require of me. Um, in conversations, it's come to light that when you do the biopsy, potentially you're only getting you know that one little section of tissue that you're extrapolating. And then you move millimeters over and that particular piece of the tissue might not have any cancer in it, correct? So you know, I feel like sometimes I hear stories also where you know it looks like there's a mass from a mammogram, you get called back, you do a biopsy and it comes back negative. But again, depending on where they're pulling that tissue from, it's kind of a long way to say, again, just reiterating the fact how complex these, these discussions are and then finding what the correct drugs are. And unfortunately, too, also hearing some stories where people have been misdiagnosed and given incorrect treatments and then going you know, years under one assumption to find out later that they have a different type of, of breast cancer, different characteristics of the breast cancer. So I just share this based on our own personal stories that we hear in our community. And it's uplifting and hopeful to know that there are 
doctors and physicians out there who are really testing that those hypotheses and providing the best possible care for people. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I would love to dive in a little bit more if you want to explain what um, the platinines, excuse my pronunciation, the, is it the platines you said? The site, platin. Is platin? Yes. And then in combination with the, um, is it gemcitabine that you were using? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, How did you um, discover this combination? Well, medicine is filled with serendipity. And many things happen almost by accident. Like, for example, the platins are actually platinum. So maybe some of your listeners wear platinum jewelry. And it's exactly the same metal. I mean, you could arguably melt down their ring and turn it into a drug. And I'm not kidding. So cis-dichlorodiaminoplatinum, cis-platinum, is the parent compound. It was discovered uh, originally in 1968 and entered into the use in therapies and became the curative therapy for testicular cancer. Curative, profound, wow. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It then moved into ovarian cancer and is the single most drug, most important drug in cancer of the ovary, bar none. Not, nothing even remotely gets close to it. So the platins had a long and storied history, and they were winding their way through different diseases. And I got interested in them for the combination with originally with a drug called cytosine aravinicide or ARAC in leukemias and lymphomas. And I became profoundly interested in how well these drugs work together. And I thought there's really something mechanistic here. There's really something profound. This is a big deal. And no sooner did I kind of fiddle around with that stuff. And I had a fellow working in my laboratory and we were dissecting these interactions. And I went to an American Association for Cancer Research meeting and I met a guy and he had developed a drug called gemcitabine. And I looked at the structure of gemcitabine. It was very similar to this other drug, ARAC. And I said, boy, I'd love to test that. And he said, it was much easier back then, by the way. This was some years ago. He said, well, I'll just send you some. Great. So we got a vial of gemcitabine and I gave it to my, te- my uh, MD, PhD tech at the time. And I said, I want to test this drug. Well, the trouble was the drug was listed under the company Lilly owned the drug and it was called LY something or that. And my tech couldn't find it because she didn't. I said, I want you to test the gemcitabine. And it was sitting in our storage for a while. And I finally said, you got to go find this stuff. And she did. And we, and we started studying it. And the drug was okay as a drug, you know. But boy, when you put it together with platinum, it was magic. Boom. Mm-hmm. Most effective thing I'd ever seen. In fact, my techs, when we would read cases, would always say, oh, yes, your favorite combination worked again. And I thought, well, where are we going to go with this combination? So I started testing everything, bladder and stomach and colon and lung and breast. And, and it never, almost never worked in colon cancer. It worked like magic in bladder cancer. It worked incredibly well in ovarian cancer. And it worked in select groups of breast cancer patients like a magic bullet. So I began to test it in the most resistant patients. I wrote a protocol and I started giving people cisplatin and gemcitabine together, always together. And it worked so well that we took young women with breast cancer who were given up on and returned them to normal life. Even some who had had bone marrow transplants returned to normal life. And I realized that the right application of drugs could be terrific. I mean, I'm a medical oncologist who hates chemotherapy. And the reason I do is because it's badly designed and badly administered. So I find it incredibly crude. But when you hit something that is elegant, that just works, that just steps up to the plate and works like, a, like the best baseball hitter ever, you can't help but want to go to the games. You just want to see it work. Right. Mm-hmm. So cisplatin and gemcitabine was this remarkably synergistic combination. Synergy, for those of your audience who don't know what it is, synergy is where one plus one equals three. It means above additive. And it normally means that things work together for some reason. So it's like salt and pepper. Salt and pepper are better than salt or pepper. And there are a lot of things like that. There are a lot of, there are a lot of things that are together than, than alone. So that was what cisplatin and gemcide means. So we, we wrote the first paper on the use of that. I hate to say that that's 20 years ago. Wow, really? But we wrote the first paper in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and it became a standard of care. And then we moved it into ovarian cancer, and it became a standard of care. And then we moved it into bladder cancer, and it became a standard of care. So that combination has turned out to have probably had broader applications than almost any doublet ever. 
And the patients that respond really well to this combination, can you tell me a little bit about like their characteristics? Are they, do they tend to be the triple negative breast cancer women or is it really specific? Yes. The mechanism of action, we were speaking earlier about how drugs work and that one drug beats up your DNA while another drug prevents the supply line. So if you imagine that cancer is a cell that's trying to repair its damage, if you radiate cancer or you give cytoxin, you give cisplatin or whatever, the cell's damaged, it's, it's beat up, right? So the cell has to make a decision. Can I fix this or am I going to die? So the cell upregulates a lot of DNA repair mechanisms and, and brings out the crew like, like if in Boston, you're watching road crews, you know, well, they're filling potholes. Well, to be quite honest, that's exactly what platinum does to your cell. It puts potholes up and down the, the highway, and you have to marshal a, a crew to go out there and fill the pothole before someone's car falls in it. So the, the process is DNA damage and DNA repair, platinum injury and DNA repair process, just like pothole and the repair crew. So what gemcitabine does is it doesn't allow the repair crew. So you get the damage, but you can't fix it. And so that process plays out in people who have the feature of being DNA damage sensitive. You see, so remember we talked about categorical patients, like some people really uh, suffer when they get DNA damage, and some people suffer if they don't get enough building blocks, and some people suffer if you block the mitotic process. So these categorical pathways can be targeted. And if you're smart about it, you can piece together mechanisms, mechanistic actions, so that the DNA damage followed by the repair inhibition causes the cell to die. And that's what cisplatin and gemcitabine does. It it beats the cell up and it prevents it from fixing. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for going into all this explanation and being able to provide the analogies and everything so that our listeners can really relate to such a complex, you know, not only coming to terms with their own diagnosis, but their own treatment plans also. One of the things that I love what your institute is doing, in addition to the concrete with the various drugs too, I love that you're the killer of cancer. But after that too, like you also are providing hope for patients, right? It's when someone feels like they're with an oncology team and they've done everything they can, the person's not responding, but they don't want to give up. I hear that when you find that oncologist who says, you know, I believe in you. We're going to fix this. We're going to figure it out. Like immediately, I just feel like, I feel like there has to be some sort of biological response to that positivity, that mindset, and that level of hope. And I feel like your your institute and, and yourself and your compassion for these patients really bring that all together. Well, thank you. I like to think that I treat my patients the way I would treat a family member. I've lost both my parents, uh, one three years ago and one some years earlier. And I treated both my parents. I took care of my parents. I moved them from Connecticut to California so that I could oversee them. And kind, my wife, Maxine, is a nurse. And, and we really took care of my parents. And, and, and they lived 95 and 96, so we were doing a good job. But there came a point in my father's life where, where he had reached a level of complicated illnesses that, that couldn't really be fixed. And he and I decided that we had done everything within reason we could easily do, and we, we stopped. So I prided myself on fixing my, prob- my father's fixable problems and recognizing when they couldn't be fixed. So for me, when a patient presents, no matter how complicated, no matter how ill, if there is a likelihood, even a small likelihood that something could work, and if they want to try and they're physically well enough, to take a treatment, then I think every patient deserves the chance to get better. It's not like I'm a magician or I'm perfect at this. I'm not. I just am willing to try. And for the patients who I published in my breast cancer studies years ago, those patients came to me with no hope, with no chance, with nothing left. And we realized that there was something that could be done. Now, only half of those patients got better. The objective response rate in these quote-unquote untreatable patients was 50%. That was the paper. But that's 50% of people who had been told to go home and die. So I think that my philosophy in all of this is I say to patients, I fix fixable problems. And I don't claim to be able to fix unfixable problems. And that's a fine line to some degree because sometimes I myself have to 
step back a little bit and say, can I actually do something? Like, because I'm, I'm, I'm so revved up to treat people all the time. I'm not sure that I always make the right decision. I think sometimes I treat people who probably are untreatable. I may overstep a little bit and I always have that question. But you see that the thing is, if someone who's untreatable gets treated, they're not going to get better. But for someone who's treatable and doesn't get treated, you've missed a chance. You've missed an opportunity. So I guess in a way, I, I guess if anything, I err on the side of treatability. Yes. Wonderful. I know that gives so much hope to our listeners, our community, and that's the hope of inspiration that I think keeps us going, right? No one wants to be told that they're just a statistic or they're just a number or it's untreatable and that there's so much willpower and fight and mental power and hope that even if the outcome is not a positive one, right? Like we still go through where that other 50%, at least we're trying and we know that we're meeting the cancer halfway, giving it our all. So that's that's inspiring to hear. Now, can I, two, two final questions because um, I know we're, we've talked a lot. There's so much content here. Are there anything that we could be aware of if you wanted to share that are like in the works that um, you would be able to share with our listeners? You talked about all these great experiments that you and your your team and your lab are doing. Is there anything on the horizon that we can look forward to that you're able to share with us? <laughs> there are a lot of things on the horizon. Um, I mentioned to you the idea that maybe someday we will treat cancer patients using drugs that influence bioenergetics and cellular energy, and not necessarily drugs that damage DNA. I mean, if you imagine that that every cell has virtually the same DNA, right? I mean, every cell in your body comes from the original parental DNA. Your mother and father give you some DNA, it gets together, you have one cell, then you have two, and then you, you know. And so we're all basically products of that first zygote, that original cell. Okay. So that being the case, if you go after DNA as your target, there's a lot of collateral damage because every cell is DNA. So if you, you said to earlier that you receive radiation to the left chest, okay, well, what are you worried about? You're not worried about the DNA damage to the cancer cells that might've been in the chest wall. You're worried about the fact that you have something called a heart just deep to that area. And in that heart cell, in those, in those uh, heart muscle cells, cardiomyocytes is DNA, right? I mean, the very same DNA that you're using to kill the cancer cell is getting injured by the radiation. So the question then is, what next level of biology could we pursue that may be unique to the cancer cell? And what we think, what I hope, I'm working really diligently on this, and we published a major treatise on this very work, and my colleagues from Brazil will be here this week. We published a paper. If your audience are really interested in reading a very dense paper, I published a paper in August of 2018 in a journal called Oncotarget, and it was a paper with 1,225 different individuals. And we studied the blood and tissue of breast cancer patients to see if they carried signatures, bioenergetic metabolic signatures of cancer. And they do. And they do. Every cancer patient gets cancer because their cells are using the same DNA and the same genes and the same RNA that all the cells are using, but they next level of complexity, they use it differently. So they take all your genetic elements and doing something called epigenetic regulation. They turn on and turn off or reprogram the same DNA so that you get a different outcome. Like for example, I don't know if you like music, but if you listen to Mozart or Chopin or Tommy Lee Jones or, 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 or rather Jerry Lewis or any, any piano player, they're using the same keyboard. I mean, it's the same keyboard. So, so Stevie Wonder and Chopin are using the same DNA, but it's very different. And that's the difference we have to make now is that we're too wrapped up in the keyboard and not wrapped up enough in the music of it. What are you doing with your keyboard? What are you doing with your DNA? So we think that the next level of complexity will be in that level of cellular metabolism, and that can be measured in the bloodstream by what we call metabolic signatures. So the metabolic signatures are not the DNA, but what you're doing with it. And that's one thing that's very exciting to us. Another thing that's very interesting is if that premise is correct, and if the DNA is used differently by cells, then are there drugs that you could use that you wouldn't think of? Like, for example, I published a paper this past year where I took a woman from Brazil 
with a very, very, very bad mass in her breast. Terrible. Nothing worked. Terrible. And she turned out to be sensitive in the test tube to a drug that we use for kidney cancer. So her doctors in Sao Paulo, using my measure, put her on a drug that we use for kidney cancer. And there would be no reason in the world to use a kidney drug in a patient with a breast mass, except that it worked, right? And she went into a durable, complete remission on a kidney drug. So the other area that's really exciting is the repurposing of drugs. And that's something very hot right now. The problem I find with it right now is that there are groups that will say, we'll take this collection of a statin and metformin and a tetracycline derivative uh, and, a, and an anti-helminthic like mebendazole. And, and all, everybody, I don't know if you've heard about this stuff, but people are taking these drugs to address their, their cancers using what's called repurposed drugs. And the problem with that, I think, is that it's no better to use repurposed drugs blindly than it is to use chemotherapy. <laughs> I, right, mean, right. I mean, it's just, it's just as bad, you know? Yeah, it goes I mean, back to your first point. Poisonous, right? yeah. But they could be equally ineffective, right? So we think that the answer here is individualization, is personalized or what they call precision medicine or whatever. You know. That's really going to be cool. So, so use platforms that select amongst drugs. Use Broaden your gain in terms of what drugs you test, and then use anything that works. Period. I don't have a dog, and I don't have a, a a dog in this fight. I don't care what people get. I really don't care. I'll test anything. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain this very complex project and breast cancer and drugs and going into the science and the DNA and the cellular level. I know it's very helpful for me personally to kind of you know, tap back into that high school and college biology classes that I took to remind myself how the cells divide and, you know, play this really important role into the the miracle of our life and our bodies. I know our listeners definitely appreciate that as well. For those who are listening who are incredibly inspired by this conversation, is there a way for them to get in touch with you or the Institute or follow up with if they are looking for treatments um, above and beyond what they're being provided? Yes, um, we have a website, Institute. You can reach us uh, through Twitter, Dr. Nagorny, or on Facebook, uh, which is also Nagorny Cancer Institute. We encourage people to look at our website and look at our publications. They may, and I regret about this, but they may get some pushback from their doctors. The doctors who are treating cancer patients, they are heroes in terms of confronting this terrible disease. And I, I'm not in a, for a moment saying that they're not doing their best. The trouble is that they were educated through a system that told them that you can't use human tissue to study cancer outcomes. This is a dogma. And the reason that happened is because uh, it didn't work in the past. And as a result of that, people abandoned the concept, abandoned the field. And they walked away from all those growth-based cell DNA synthesis and, and, and uh, stop cell from growing methods. But the trouble is that as we came along in the, in the 90s and we said, well, no, you have to do this instead of that, everyone wasn't listening. You know, it was like sort of the, the boy who cried wolf. Oh, yeah, we heard that story. We're not going back. Well, no, no, there really is a wolf here. I mean, you should come back and listen to this, you know. So, yeah, we, we think that patients should educate themselves. And if they go on our website, they'll see that there are many publications and peer-reviewed journals and, and thousands of outcomes. And there's blogs and there's, uh, there's uh, patient information. And so, yeah, we, we think patients should educate themselves. I don't know if we can help everyone, but we would delighted for them to know about their opportunities. Wonderful. Well, I'll definitely link to your website and you know, the journals that you reference and everything too, like in the show notes afterwards. So it's very easy for our listeners to gain access to that information and follow you. So I appreciate that. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you would like to include? I think we talked talked about so much, but if there's anything that we missed or something I did <laughs> no, not I mean, ask. I, I, I just think that cancer patients should realize that they're on a very unique journey, that every cancer patient is their own story in real time. And you want to use all resources available. I don't want to make it sound like we're the only ones who can help or that we are uniquely skilled. It's We're just a piece of the puzzle, but you want to make sure that you get all the pieces in place. You want to get all your ducks in a row. And if we can help, if we can offer an angle or an insight or a drug profile or an exploration of a novel drug or whatever, then then yeah, it might, it might be worth their while finding out about us. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Negroni, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. 
Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.